0: And now here's this week's message from Hollyview Church. We continue our study in the book of Philippians with special guest speaker, Dr. Todd Miles in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 30, with the message, Finding Joy as We Work Out Our Salvation.
1: Well, good morning. If you would open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. While you're turning there, let me give you greetings from Gresham Bible. They will be praying for us, or will have already prayed for us, thankfully, at, at this point. And, and from Western Seminary, where, where I teach, and add the, <laughs> nice. Uh, yes, one shout out, that's awesome. Um, that's more than I usually get, uh, so that's, that's great. Um, and where, where Joel was, was a student, and that's where I, I got to know him. So, uh, Philippians chapter two. Our, our text this morning is uh, verses 12 uh, through to the end of the chapter, but I'm gonna start reading uh, right now in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Would you uh, pray with me briefly? Uh, Father, we ask now that you open your word up to us and open us up to your word that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of christ please bless us to that end in jesus name amen okay uh honest question here honest answer i might be the only one who answers this way but how many of you when you heard the 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 different people say oh what a beautiful morning wasn't this a beautiful morning you get to see god's glory how many of you one of your first thoughts was That wind was so cold this morning. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, so me too. So I'm preaching to myself here. Um, It is so easy to be dissatisfied, and it is so easy to lapse into uh, negativity and criticism, not being content with the good things that God has given to us. And, and when we do, we feed right into the mold or the pattern of this world, which today more than ever before is, is, is trading in outrage and discontent and, and criticism. Um, but Paul, in the book of Philippians, which has been preached here for, for the last bit, has, has been writing to these Philippians Christians some 2,000 years ago. And and they were in the midst of trial and trauma and persecution, persecution for their faith, for their confession in Christ. Paul himself, as you know, was unjustly imprisoned for his faith. Philippians is one of what we call the, uh, the prison epistles because he wrote it from prison under lock and key and guard. And his counsel to the readers of this letter in Philippi is particularly appropriate for us today, in this day of outrage. Paul's command to the Philippians was to rejoice. And it raises the question, how and why? (laughs) How were we supposed to rejoice in this time period, and and why would we? Why would we? Uh, Rejoicing would have been very difficult for Paul's audience. And it is difficult for us. We are in a time right now, if you turn on the news, it's like this all the time, but it feels acutely so right now, of international conflict. There is an economy where inflation is on the rise, there's a steady stream of political nonsense, ineptitude and dishonesty, and a social setting where the perverse is normalized and then celebrated. That's the world in which we live. Those who take any kind of stand for biblical righteousness, they are dismissed as intolerant, and then canceled by a culture that is more concerned about personal pronouns than by murder. How are we supposed to rejoice right now? Why would we? So this morning, you're here, maybe some of you, you you don't yet understand yourself to be a Christian, interested in Jesus, not so sure about the church maybe, please listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, and consider whether or not the world presents itself as it actually is, or if God's assessment of things rings more true." For the rest of us, followers of Jesus, consider your attitude and disposition over these next 30 minutes. Evaluate that by the certain realities. Evaluate your attitude in light of the certain realities that Jesus Christ is right now seated at the right hand of God. Do your actions, do your attitudes demonstrate a hope that is born of that fact, Or, are you slipping into the worldly pattern of faithless and hopeless grumbling and self-pity. Okay, so that's the agenda, right? The context, Philippians. We're getting to the end of chapter 2, which is halfway through the the book. The broad theme is about rejoicing and also partners in the gospel. And that raises the question, Paul's very delighted that the Philippians are partners and he lauds other partners, and and, and, and it raises the question, what what kind of partner in the gospel are we supposed to be? And in chapter 1, Paul gives some examples of some bad partners. These are people dominated by selfish motives, false desires. Chapter 2, then, he offers up Jesus as the greatest example, in contrast to the selfish people, as one of complete humility. Jesus Christ, the very King of kings, the exalted Lord, humbled himself for our sake, becoming like us, becoming actually worse than us, He became a servant to the point of death, even death on a cross. And and the big idea, as Paul continues his letter, the big idea here is partners in the gospel will work out their salvation by orienting their lives by the word of life and the day of Christ, not according to the world's broken values. So that's the big idea. Partners in the gospel work out their salvation by orienting their lives by the word of life and the day of Christ, not according to our world's broken values. He begins with a command in verse verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is one of the more difficult passages in the entire Bible. Work out your salvation, for it is God who is working in you. Work out your salvation, what what could that possibly mean? Uh, The the language of the New Testament here is, is very literally work your salvation work your salvation note that it's not work for your salvation because that would be a a total false truth a, a a heresy even we do not work for our salvation the bible is very clear on this we do not and cannot work for our own salvation Paul said exactly that, even in verse 28 of chapter 1, which you've already heard here preached. Your salvation, Paul wrote, that is from God, right? In Romans chapter 4, to to pick one verse of a multitude, (laughs) is uh, Paul writes, But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is credited for righteousness. So we do not work for our salvation. If you think you can work for your salvation, then you do not understand the gospel. You are saved by grace through faith. But here Paul says, work your salvation or work out your own salvation. So so well, what could that mean? What could that mean? Well, let's think about what salvation is first. I think that's important. Salvation is used broadly in the Bible. It could be as simple as save a person from drowning, right? Uh, But when we're talking about spiritual realities, salvation is spoken of with different kind, different aspects, if you will. Think about regeneration is part of your salvation, justification, the declaration that you are right before God. That's salvation. Your sanctification, your growth in holiness as you are being transformed day by day into the image of Christ, that is salvation. And then one day glorification, when we see Jesus and are transformed into his very image, we will become like him. That is salvation. And so in the Bible, it is true for those of you who are followers of Jesus, you have already been saved and you are being saved And one day you will yet be saved. That's how the Bible uses salvation. Of the things that I just mentioned, regeneration and justification, you were born again, you were declared righteous by God, you didn't do any of that, right? You you don't regenerate yourself. You don't declare yourself to be righteous. I mean, salvation would be really easy if it was just a matter of us saying, I'm righteous right? Uh, th- that carries no authority whatsoever. But when God declares you righteous, it's God doing it, right? your Glorification, First John uh, chapter 2 says, uh, dear children, what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know this, that when he, Jesus Christ, appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. That's something that is done to you. You do not glorify yourself. You play no role in that whatsoever. Interestingly enough, though, in that first John passage, um, we will be like him for we will see him like he is. That's the glorification, that transformation. And then John writes, everyone who has this hope in him, everyone who has this hope in Christ does what? Purifies himself. Just as Christ is pure. We, we know that we're going to be like Christ. And John says, if you know you're going to be like Christ, then get busy right now becoming like Christ. Everything else is just a waste of time. And so we, we work. We work to purify ourselves. And that's the sanctification. And, and so, so sanctification is something that we actually participate in. We, it's, it's really the, about the only part of salvation that we do anything with. We work to sanctify ourselves. So maybe I think that's what Paul is getting at here when he says, work your salvation. Work your salvation. Maybe he's talking about sanctification in particular. And and I think that's largely true, but it might just be more simple and broader than that. Here's what I think it means when Paul says, work out your salvation or work your salvation. He's saying, live out right now who you are. You have been saved. Now live that out. You are a saved one. Work that gift of salvation that has been given to you. How do we do it? Paul says, with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Everything I just mentioned related to salvation is to be treated with respect. You have been given something great if you are a follower of Christ. Treat your salvation that way. Fear and trembling does not mean abject terror. It means respect and awe. You should never be able to get over the fact that God saved you. Paul was always just stunned. (laughs) He was like, I'm the worst of all sinners, and yet Christ saved me. We should all be able to say that. I can't believe that God saved me, but I'll take it. And so we, we treat that salvation with respect. And, and, and the reason, the reason that we're able to work our salvation is because God is at work in us. We work because God is working. And we've seen that even in the very first part of Philippians chapter 1. Paul commended the Philippians for their partnership in the gospel. He was so grateful for their labor and their partnership. And then he declared that God started that good work in them and he would carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So even as you work your salvation, as you work out your salvation, not work for, but work your salvation, you're not left to do it on your own. It is God who is working through you. Any good that you do is because of Christ. And because of Christ, you can be confident that there will be good that you do. God will not let you go. I mentioned sanctification. That's something that we participate in. But we're not left to merely our own devices. God works through us. So work, yourself, work your salvation so as to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, knowing that he who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ, as Paul said in chapter 1, knowing that the spirit of Christ will deliver them. Strive st- side by side with one another, as Paul said in chapter 1 knowing that the fruit of righteousness comes from Jesus Christ. The truth that God is at work in you is not supposed to discourage your working. It's like, well, if God's doing it. I might as well do nothing then, because everything I do will just mess the whole thing up, right? No, it's supposed to encourage your work. My working, my salvation with fear and trembling does not compete with God's working. It completes God's working. More to the point, God's work doesn't erase my effort. It fuels my effort. And the result of all of this is God's good pleasure. All of this is for the good pleasure of God, who who always acts to glorify himself, always for your good, working in and through you, bringing the fruit of salvation to bear in your life. That makes God happy pleases him so work out your own salvation Paul says and that sounds in the abstract okay well what do I do and he gives us something very basic so basic you would almost think he doesn't need to say it but then we think about it it's really really difficult he says do all without grumbling or disputing you might be thinking that all that sounds great I want to work out my salvation what do I do stop grumbling there you go (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's it. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And you might think, okay, d- do all. So like, what am I supposed to do? Uh, th- there's got to be some modifiers. There's some qualifiers. There's Certainly there's a set of exemptions because do you know what I'm going through? I-, I am totally within my rights to complain. Matter of fact, I think it'd be foolish of me not to complain. But Paul literally said, do all. You might think, well, well do what? Do what? The answer is Anything, if you're doing, then you're to do it without grumbling or disputing. To do all things without grumbling or disputing, it's an absolute prohibition. That is, do not grumble, do not dispute. Grumbling, if we think, so, we, well, what is it to grumble? It gives voice to what is in our hearts, the fallen part of our hearts. And in that, we express maybe only to ourselves. Our frustration, our our lack of contentment with the circumstances or places in which we find ourselves. Disputing takes it to another level. That's the public arguing, the, the, the complaining out loud that seeks to bring others into our own dark space. It's an attempt to bring about a change, maybe in the situation where others submit to our desired outcomes. Now, disputing and arguing in and of themselves, that that might not be inherently sinful. There are some things that we are supposed to argue. There are some things, falsehoods, that we are supposed to dispute. But when it's combined with grumbling, that's the negative side of disputing that Paul clearly forbids here. And why is this so serious? Because God is the sovereign Lord. And our grumbling is directed against the Lord's providence every time. We are saying when we grumble or complain, in effect, God, you may be on your throne, but I don't think you know what you're doing. You may be sovereign over all things, but you are misusing your powers and abilities and are not pleasing me. When we then dispute publicly, we seek to bring others into that very rebellion. Now, why would he say, don't grumble, don't dispute? The purpose, so that we might stand out in a broken world. Verse 15, so that for this purpose, you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So he talks about the backdrop, it's the world. He says the world is crooked, it's depraved, crooked, it means unscrupulous or dishonest, twisted, depraved, it's perverted, it is misleading. And these are not really happy descriptions of the world, right? pretty dire. The values of the world, its way of seeing reality, Paul says, twisted, perverted, nothing actually makes sense. It's like, Living in a world where the values are all backward, and you probably feel that, right? Where everybody and everything tells you that up is down and wrong is right. And and for example, our world, in, in direct contradiction to the evidence, it tells us there's no God. Or even if there is, he's weightless and inconsequential. He doesn't matter. We're told instead that the self, is the true God when we get down to what matters most, and our lives should be lived in service to that God, myself. We're told that the ultimate goal then is your own self-actualization, not self-sacrifice. Who would do that? Why would you do that? We're told that our bodies, they're really not determinate of anything, even things as basic as male and female, man and woman. Being true to how we perceive ourselves Again, remember, this is the crooked and twisted generation. How we perceive ourselves trumps everything, trumps reality even. We're told that biology or history has absolutely nothing to do with sexuality, but our personal preference dictates all. And if that's not acceptable to some, they go to the other extreme. The body's the most important thing. We should beautify it, adorn it, preserve it to glorify it. We're taught that the end always justifies the means. We make our decisions according to all these dictates only to arrive at the end of the world's path feeling terrible, looking back on a swath of destruction and pain and death left in our wake. And that's the world we live in. That's what Paul's getting at here. That's the backdrop. Paul Paul reminds me of you remember back in the day, the, the roadside attraction, the Houses of Confusion? Do you, you remember those where, where you would go in and everything was so off-kilter and, and the angles were so weird that it looked like balls were rolling uphill? Do you all remember any of those before? Yeah. Of course, the, the laws of physics like gravity and optics, they still applied in those roadside attractions. but. The, the, the angles were so strange that your your perceptions were being reoriented, give you a new perspective that things appeared to be breaking the laws of gravity and physics. So perspective is, is huge. And the scriptures describe a generation of fallen humanity as twisted and crooked, not to be trusted. Their perspective is all off. And if you fall into the world's mold, then you will begin to have a skewed view of how things actually are. And Paul says the world, though, in doing so, it creates a contrast which creates an opportunity for all of us. And that contrast is clear by the identification of the people of God as the children of the Lord, where he says that, that, that we might shine as lights in the world. Jesus Christ has made possible our adoption as children of the living God. That is the fundamental identity of all Christians. And and there are many ways in the Bible that describe who we are as followers of Jesus. But I can't think of anyone that's more wonderful than to be an adopted child of God, co-heir with Jesus Christ. And and in this passage where Paul says, don't grumble, don't complain, it describes how children of God are to behave. Three terms here are used to describe the character of God's children. He says, be blameless, innocent, without blemish. It should mean that no one should be able to find fault with us, minimally in this passage, for grumbling, for griping, for bickering. To be pure then in this context, to not mix up our speech, which is supposed to be seasoned with grace, with negative complaints or divisive arguments. To be without blemish is what God has planned for us from all of eternity past. It's the very thing that God chose us in Christ for. We're told in Ephesians, Christ is working to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that the church, she, might be holy and without blemish. And, and, And you know, I mentioned sort of our world feeds on outrage right now. You aren't relevant unless you're complaining about something on social media. When God's people refuse to buy into that, in contrast to the crooked and twisted generation that always populates the world. Paul says the contrast is like a diamond against black velvet or a, bl- a bright light lighting up the sky. And that that makes sense because Jesus had claimed that he himself was the light of the world, right? He told his followers, let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And in our passage... Paul says here, you, know, you might be thinking, well, how do I let my light shine? Paul says very basically, don't grumble, don't complain. And God's people, of course, have not always provided such a sharp contrast <laughs> with those around them. Paul remembers, as he writes to the Philippians here, quoting Moses who had chastised the Israelites in Deuteronomy 32. This is what I think Paul's thinking of because he basically quotes it here. Paul looks back on the the experience of the Israelites who became like the nations around them, a crooked and perverse generation. Deuteronomy 32, he says, "'The Rock, that is God. "'His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, "'a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, "'just and upright is he.'" They, people, of Israel have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Exact same words that Paul uses as he writes the Philippians. The Israelites had become just as crooked and depraved as the nations that they came out of Egypt and then the nations that would surround them. The kindness and mercy of God was to be a demonstration by Israel to the nations that the God of Abraham was unlike the gods of the pagans. And if we were to keep reading that passage in Deuteronomy, we would find that Israel itself had been adopted by God. But Israel, Moses said, and Paul reminds us, had forfeited her adoption due to her unbelief and then the behavior that followed. And we might be tempted to think, Well, if Israel could forfeit her adoption, can we? Todd, didn't you just say that one of the greatest blessings is is our adoption into the family of God? Can we forfeit our adoption? And and, and the answer would be no. No, that the nation of ethnic Israel was adopted by God formally by the Mosaic Covenant. It was a covenant that the nation of Israel was not able to keep due not to the inadequacy of God's promises, but the broken and twisted hearts of those who were supposed to keep the covenant, Christian, you need to know that your adoption is secure by virtue of a better covenant with better promises. And although right now you may not be able to live up to all the commands of the new covenant, including even this most basic one, don't complain, don't grumble, right? You need to know that Jesus Christ, your brother, has kept all those commands. He has been sent by God as the king of the kingdom of God. A king who came to create a people by saving a people like you and me. And then leading that people to life and peace. Jesus Christ came by appointment of God to reconcile his people to God. He lived a perfect life. And then he gave up his life as a ransom for the sins of others. Making our forgiveness Not just possible, but certain. And because he himself was innocent, death was not able to hold him. And the king of kings burst forth from the grave. And now we're told that all who confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead, they are transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And, of course, that's the gospel that you hear hear preached here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. That transfer into God's kingdom comes with it. The giving of God's spirit to regenerate you, to seal your adoption, and to sanctify the king's people. Transferring them, transforming them into a people who will forever live obediently to the king's ways. And and that obedience for you right now, I get it. It is not perfect. But your destiny one day is to live without sin. Without rebellion, and certainly to live without grumbling or disputing, that's your destiny. As as far off as that might sound from your reality right now, that is what you have been saved for. In the meantime, Paul gives some advice on how to make progress by the word of life and the day of Christ. So he says in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. So Paul says that you do this right now. How am I supposed to not grumble or complain? You hold to the word of life. Hold on to that. The the word of life is the word that gives life. It's it's the word of God. You'd think I'd be able to pronounce God from now. It it is the word of God. The word of God. It it includes, it's focused upon the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But we know that in both the Old and the New Testaments of the Bible, affirm that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And our current circumstances, where we're at in this day, it makes it all the more important that we hold fast to that word of God. We are, as Paul said, surrounded by a, a crooked and twisted generation in a world that tells us, as I said, that, that wrong is right and up is down. And uh, Have you ever read C.S. Lewis's Silver Chair? Anybody at all? Okay, so a couple of you, except I'm talking to you. Remember Puddleglum, (laughs) Puddleglum in the silver chair, who who decided to cling tenaciously to the promises of, of Aslan, promises of God, living by faith even when all the forces were arrayed against him. And we have to do that too. We have to believe in our hearts that despite what the world says, it is better to give than to receive. We are to believe that love is stronger than hatred and that greed, in contrast with Gordon Gecko of Wall Street, is not good. It's not good. And more than anything else, we need to believe that God is sovereign, that he is all-powerful, that God is holy and all-loving, and those who belong to Christ are servants of the great king, and we are held in the king's mighty hand, and there is no better place to be than right here right now. Wherever Jesus decides that here might be for you and for me. And, and I get it. That can be hard in our current world when the future looks so uncertain from a worldly perspective. So read the Word of God. Meditate on the Word of God. Breathe the Word of God. Speak the Word of God to one another. Live the Word of God. Believe the Word of God. That's what it is to hold fast the word of life. I'm not saying that everything is okay. Everything is not okay. But because Jesus Christ is returning, everything will be okay. Tomorrow is not promised. Yesterday's not coming back. So we're called to believe today and we do that because of the only other day that matters. In the Bible, there's only two days that matter for us right now. This day and that day. This day and that day. We do this by holding to the word of life today, this day, and you do it by looking ahead to that day. We orient ourselves in this dark world full of crooked, twisted generation according to the certain reality of that day, the return of Christ. Jesus is coming back. And that will be the true return of the king. And he promises to make everything right. He promises to judge the living and the dead. He promises to live with his people forever in the glorious kingdom of God, a consummated kingdom. And on that day, we, the people of the king, will be freed not just from the penalty of sin, not just from the power of sin, but from the very presence of sin. We will be so Christ-like on that day that the very thought of sin, the very thought of grumbling or complaining, will be unheard of. Every fiber of your being will be oriented towards delighting in Christ and obeying the Lord. And Paul offers himself as an example of someone who is living this day in light of that day. He says that he has labored ever since he'd known Christ in light of that day. And he wants to be proud of the Philippians on that day. Paul was jealous for, not jealous of, the Philippian believers. He had taught them the gospel. He had discipled them along the way. He had been a good shepherd for them, serving as the under-shepherd to the great good shepherd. And he wants to see all of them cross the finish line of faith, one day at a time, as they live, but each day lived in anticipation of that day. He doesn't want to feel like he's wasted his time, that he ran or labored in vain, and he knew that the end was nearing for him, but rather than laud his own incredible and faithful service all over the world, which if we would do about Paul, he was amazing, right? But he suggests he's nothing more than a drink offering, being poured out on the sacrificial altar of their service Drink offerings were usually the last of the offerings, added on to the more substantial and weighty offerings. That's Paul's humble opinion of himself. Like he said to the Corinthians, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. So he says in verse 17 and 18, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The command to rejoice, it doesn't mean we don't grieve, lament, or pour out our hearts to God in the midst of suffering. We do all of those things. Rejoicing is not inconsistent with grief or lament. I mean, it, it can't be any other way this day in a world where the kingdom is, is now, but it is definitely not yet where Christ has conquered sin and death, but he hasn't returned yet to make all things new. That's that day. We're here in this day. Paul, the imprisoned apostle, the one who would give his life for the glory of Christ and the sake of Christ's church, invited, no, he really commanded his gospel partners to be glad and rejoice with him. And Paul had good reason to rejoice. He'd outlined many of them already in his letter to the Philippians, the most significant of which, of course, was that Christ had died for sin and was now exalted and given the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, and that is that day, reality. And Paul's living this day in light of that. In the rest of the chapter, he talks about some other reasons to rejoice that are helpful along the way, the good gifts of ministry partners. In verses 19 through 24, he discusses Timothy. He was really excited to share Timothy with the Philippians. He was confident that they too would be blessed by Paul's ministry partner. In verses 25 through 30, Paul discussed the ministry of Epaphroditus, whom Paul also wanted to send to the Philippians. And I want you to note the love that Paul has for his friend as, as he describes him here. He says that he, Epaphroditus, has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, but not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul was so attached to Epaphroditus, if he would have died, it would have given him great, great sorrow. You see the heart of of Paul here. His relationships were deep and strong. And I I guess I would just ask you now, do you see that in your ministry partners? When you think of Joel, does it cause you to rejoice? When you think of your elders, do do you rejoice? When you look at each other here on a Sunday morning, gathered, God's people gathered, do you rejoice? When we sing these next songs, sing loud and with great joy, not just so God can hear, but so the people next to you can hear be encouraged by your faith, because it's encouraging for us to hear the faith vocalized of our brothers and sisters next to us. I need to hear your testimony. I need to hear your conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord. That encourages and edifies me. Paul began this by saying that, well, do everything without grumbling or complaining. To grumble or dispute would be to call into question God's lordship. Instead, be glad and rejoice, which is what he commands at the end. And I know that's hard right now. These are dark times if you turn on the television and see the news of what's going on. Turning off the TV won't actually make those dark things go away, though. I'm asking you not to fall into the trap of seeing as the world sees the perspective of a crooked and twisted generation. Instead, see the world as it actually is. A world, no doubt, ravaged by our rebellion, but a world that is still deeply loved by a sovereign God who is all-powerful, who in the midst of our real suffering gives hope. You want to know how much God cares about you and what you're going through right now. Look at the cross. That is God's answer to our suffering. Look at the cross. There is displayed the power of God as He takes suffering and the penalty of sin into Himself. So keep looking at the cross. There in the cross is displayed the holiness of God shining brightly in the darkest of times. Look at the cross. It orients us. And when we look at the cross, make no mistake, our vision might be obscured as we look through real tears of real grief and lament over the ravages of what sin has done in this world to others and to ourselves. But as we look at the cross, our perspective will change. There is no place for God's people to grumble or dispute Not when the resurrected Christ is on his throne. There's actually every reason to rejoice. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful that you give us commands like this, as hard as they are, to follow. But Father, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, that we would not uh, slip into the pattern or mold of this world, but that... um, We we would recognize that that, that this day is is difficult and dark, but there is a day coming when you will make all things right. And in the meantime, everything is going according to your plan. As hard as that is to believe sometimes, we confess that you are sovereign and you are good and you are all-powerful. Give us hope and give us faith, we pray, to see rightly.
0: Again, whether online or in person, thank you for joining us here at Hollyview Church.